You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Seth. We'll be getting into the show in a few seconds, but I wanted to make sure you knew about SETICON, the mind meld of science and sci-fi that will be held the weekend of August 13th in Santa Clara, California. A real cornucopia of panels, talks, and chit-chat with scientists and celebrities. Also, a fantastic gala banquet to honor Frank Drake's 80th birthday. Meet the man himself. Come join us. You'll find the info at SETICON.com. Okay, so this is the cleaning supply household cleaners aisle. You said you wanted some bleach, right? Oh, yeah, they got rows and rows of this stuff. Okay, so just grab... <laughs> okay, I need whiter whites. Check your checks. <laughs> okay, okay, so what else? Let's grab... Oh, let's grab some aspirin. Okay. okay, aspirin. Yeah, uh, Looks like it's all there. Should you that, count? That make should, sure they're all there. I think that'll cure all the headaches in New Jersey. Oh, let's get a peach. A peach? Would you like paper or plastic? Uh, neither. We can throw it into this bag here. Eight ninety-six, please. All I got is a twenty. Oh, so. oh, you have is a twenty. That was my twenty. Oh. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot. Okay, Molly. Bleach, uh, aspirin, and a peach. Bleach and a peach and an aspirin. Okay, so we're off to the toxicology lab up here on the hill. The hill, in this case, being here in Berkeley at the University of California. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Are We Alone? And What's Your Poison? That's today's question. We'll hear about a deadly poison that people voluntarily inject under their skin and surprising new research on the side effects of doing it. Wow, there are side effects of doing something like that? I know you're stunned. (laughs) We'll also meet a man who hunts for the most deadly, slithering, swimming, crawling creatures on Earth. Hi, I'm Martin Smith. I'm a professor of toxicology at the University of California at Berkeley. Hey, Martin. Uh, it's good to see you. You've got uh, quite an impressive setup here. I mean, they're just tables uh, extending somewhat to the horizon here. You've got a lot of glassware, a lot of substances. What do you do here? Well, we're trying to find the causes of leukemia and lymphoma. We're trying to find the causes of those diseases so we can prevent them. But this is a toxicology lab. What do you do? It sounds like you might study dangerous substances. Well, yeah, we think that chemicals and exposure to environmental chemicals and chemicals in the workplace are really important in producing leukemia and lymphoma. And so we're examining specifically those chemicals. So carcinogens. Uh, can give me some idea of what kind of substances you might be studying? Yeah, perhaps the compound we're known best for studying is benzene, which causes leukemia, including perhaps childhood leukemia in people. And benzene, now maybe you could tell me where people encounter benzene. I mean, unless you have it in a bottle on the shelf, how are you going to ever come across benzene? Why would anybody get sick from that? Right, well, benzene's actually almost 1% of gasoline, and so um, people have worried about there being a connection between traffic and air pollution with benzene in it and leukemia in people, and so... There's been a lot of regulation of gasoline to lower the benzene content of gasoline in the United States. Now, what I don't see here are any, you know, lab rats. I don't see any animals here. So how do you assess what the benzene's doing to you? We don't really study uh, experimental animals in this lab. We actually focus most of our work on studying human populations with what's called epidemiology studies, all by using human cell cultures, stem cells and other things in cell culture, exposing them to chemicals and seeing what happens, and then seeing if we see the same things in people. So, Martin, you have a lot of test tubes, and I see that there's a lot of there's centrifuges here and so forth. So what is it actually that you're doing on the molecular level? So we're analyzing the DNA to see whether there are changes in the DNA called mutations which cause cancer. 
We're analyzing uh, uh, cells and uh, tissues from people to see if there's changes in expression of particular genes or expression of different proteins. And we're also examining susceptibility to these diseases by looking for specific genetic traits in people which make them susceptible either to the chemical exposures or to the diseases themselves. The point is, is that there are chemicals all around us all the time and they're interacting with our bodies in many different ways. Yes, we, we believe basically uh, the causes of most chronic diseases, everything from Parkinson's disease to Alzheimer's to cancer, is a result of your chemical exposures both from your internal body and outside and your genetic makeup, how susceptible you are to those exposures. But toxicology is a study of poisons. Is that right? Well, that's uh, an oversimplification from a long time ago when in the early days of toxicology, what's going on now with toxicology is it's the study of the adverse effects of any chemical on living organisms, everything from bacteria to human beings. And this lab, I mean, this is a modern toxicology lab, but 100 years ago, 200 years ago, what would this have looked like if anyone was studying chemicals or poisons? Macy, they've been trying to isolate poisons from people, so say somebody had been poisoned with perhaps the most common poison of the day, arsenic, which was very widely used in the 1800s. They would have been trying to identify arsenic in the tissues. These days, with what's called mass spectrometry, you can do that instantly, and you can measure hundreds of metals all at once. So what sort of instruments would we have seen, say, 100 years ago, Martin? Now, obviously, you talk about a mass spectrometer. I, I bet they didn't have one of those 100 years ago. Would it have just been, you know, sort of like Dr. Frankenstein's lab with a bunch of, bunch of test tubes and, uh, you know, Bunsen burners? Yeah, it probably would, actually. It would be like what you see on the Hollywood movies where they try to make out that that's a modern-day lab, but where there are test tubes and people are adding various coloured solutions and looking for a change in colour. Uh, this particular lab... We're not really trying to find out who's poisoned. We're trying to find out what causes chronic disease rather than sudden poisoning. So modern toxicology labs have become quite sophisticated in identifying the threats posed by the chemicals we live with. Thanks, Martin. We have more we want to ask you about some modern poisons. But let's stay for a moment with that image of the first toxicology laboratory and how all of this got started. And for that, we change venues and genres. Good evening, and welcome to Mystery Science Radio. I am your host, Archer Livingston Wendell, Wendell Livingston, Earl of Duke Thistlewood. History is rife with corpses and with murderers, but prior to the 19th century, there were few scientific tools for catching a murderer who'd picked poison as his, uh, poison. One simply could not detect it in a corpse. Oh, by all means, if your victim were violently ill, an investigating officer might suspect a toxic substance. But more than likely, murder suspects would walk free, while the poison-ridden body of their victims would molder in the morgue. And that doesn't make for scintillating mystery, or science, or radio. Luckily, this situation changed in the early 1800s when scientists began to isolate elements and compounds. The periodic table of the elements was created and KCN, for example, then became the symbol for a molecule of potassium, carbon, and nitrogen. Potassium cyanide. And cyanide is part of our tale. It was a favorite of poisoners, as were other nasty substances that helped them do away with inconvenient adversaries, relatives, wives, what have you, and get away with murder. Until toxicology became a science. Deborah Blum, a science writer preternaturally fascinated with the darker aspects of chemistry, writes in The Poisoner's Handbook about the birth of forensic medicine in Jazz Age, New York. Our tale begins with one Frederick Morse, a polite young man working at a pensioner's home in Yonkers, New York in 1918. He was up to some nasty business using the compound CHCL3. Yes, CHCL3. Chloroform. <laughs> what was he doing with the chloroform? Well, chloroform is an anesthesia. Everyone thinks of it as an anesthesia, but it's actually quite a terrific poison. And Mr. Morris worked in a home with elderly people who he didn't particularly like. So after a while, he decided that he would get rid of the people who just didn't really appeal to them, and he used chloroform to do that. A minimum, he actually at one point confessed to about eight of them 
but there were suspicions later that he might have killed more. How did he administer it? So first he tried soaking a rag in chloroform and putting it over their mouths and holding it over his intended victim's mouth until they inhaled a lethal amount of this very poisonous compound. And it turned out that the chloroform was kind of caustic and it left evidence, it left burn marks on their skin. So then he literally, while they were sleeping, would go in, he'd have cotton soaked with chloroform, and he'd just shove it up their nose. And then he'd sit with them and wait till they died. Now, chloroform, if used in the right dose, does not kill you, and it was really a godsend at this time for surgeons because people could go under chlorofilm and they wouldn't feel the surgery. But when it does kill, how does it kill? Right. Well, chloroform was, as you say, one of the first things that was actually used to alleviate the pain of childbirth. And for a while, it was hugely popular anesthesia. People just loved it which is always so interesting to me with chemicals. We love them, and then we don't love them so much. And doctors quit loving chloroform so much when they realized they never could figure out a safe dose. You would have two people who are almost identical. You'd give them both chloroform. One would come through the surgery beautifully. One would die. And so they started recognizing that chloroform was very unpredictable, and it actually killed by two things. It shut down your liver. It shut down your kidney. And it it actually could slow your heart rate to the point that you just did, in fact, die. So although there was some understanding of some forensics, there really was no science of forensics at this point in, in the early 20th century. There was no field of toxicology. So you had many of these poisonous substances out there, like chloroform, that, that hadn't been isolated in the lab, or if they had, they weren't well understood. That's right. You know, I love this period. My book is really set in the, mostly in the 1920s, you know, a few years on either side of that. And it's the period where, in the United States anyway, Forensic medicine is really being invented. Before it, you would have chemists or doctors at different universities kind of experimenting with different methods of detecting death, but you never had dedicated forensic scientists. So there was no way to coherently look at a cause of death and really reliably tell the police or the family how that person had died. Hey, what happened to Frederick Moores, by the way? Well, finally, he disappeared. What happened was that even though they never actually formally charged him with these murders, even though everyone, including every member of the police department, thought he was guilty, so they wangled a deal and they sent him to a kind of country home for people with mental problems, and he walked away. The director had no idea that he was a murder suspect, and one day he disappeared. I mean, one of the reasons I really loved that story was that he had given the criminal justice system so many clues, and one of them, and he told them this, was that when he had come from Europe to the United States, he had changed his name to Moores. It had been something else in Europe, and Moores is actually the Latin word for death. More on Moores, on death that is, as our tale about the poisoners of early 20th century New York continues. What's your poison? (laughs) On Are We Alone? Now, I want to digress long enough to elucidate the ephemeral morphology of Bart. Okay, grab him. (laughs) Hey, got him. Hold him down. Secure the arms. What's going on? Hey, ow, watch the arm here. What were you just doing? Before you barged in? Yeah, I was practicing my talk on the results of N-body viscous simulations of the evolution of non-elliptical... No one understands what that means, Seth. What? It's straightforward. It's jargon. A normal person would say... How galaxies are made? See how much easier that is? And see how you don't force listeners to run to a dictionary or log on to (laughs) abstroopscienceterms.com? Yeah, well, no such word is abstroop. Perhaps you mean abstruse science terminology, which means, of course, recondite. What? Hard to understand. I'm tightening this rope around his chest. Hey, don't wrinkle the new pocket protector. Okay, here's the deal. You're going to eat your fancy big scientific words right here so you can see how using too much technical jargon is deadly to explaining science. Your presumption is that after the application of requisite stress, you might engender a compensatory response to your injunction. What? Seth thinks that you can get him to talk plainly. 
Yeah, I do. And let's begin with that. Here's a dose of your compensatory response, <laughs> along with elucidation of ephemeral morphology. <laughs> and oh, what did you say the other day? Oh yes, inverse hyperbolic transform. But that was observed. <laughs> Don't forget the correlation coefficient. <laughs> oh, the binomial probability distribution. <laughs> the sampling error of plus or minus 2%. <laughs> and finally, that classic convoluted scientific sentence, the purpose of this investigative endeavor, and by that I refer to a quantitative sampling is to illuminate and elucidate for all intended parties the parameters germane to the aforementioned phenomena. <laughs> That's a big one. Now how do you feel? I have a headache, a tick over one eye, and I've lost track of the discussion. Now that I understood. See? Scientific explanations don't have to be unwieldy. I get it. So when I say that listeners can help scientists at the SETI Institute by joining Team SETI at SETI.org and then receiving a photograph of the staff by emailing are we alone at SETI.org? Can I also say that this would be an elegant effort and a brilliant expository move? Pick one. Joining Team SETI would be an elegant effort. Now we're communicating. SETI.org and are we alone at SETI.org? I'll take off this tape. Ow! You've stripped the filamentous follicular biomaterial on my epidermis clean off. Indeed, prior to the 20th century, poisoners enjoyed a golden age. But the fun began to wind down in 1918, when Charles Norris became the city's first chief medical officer. He started using the tools of science to investigate murders, stripping the then no medical degree required New York City coroner of his duties. The Columbia University professor of pathology built a chemical laboratory, financed much of it himself, and had the good sense to hire the tireless Alexander Gettler as his right-hand man. Together, they put the new science of chemistry to work, fighting crime. And that's where our tale continues. And Alexander Gettler, who was the first forensic toxicologist in the United States, was really a genius. And when you go back and look at the work he did, uh, you realize that he made so many fundamental discoveries about poisons. It's amazing that one man could do that. And he also, you know, he was inventing it as he went. He had to build the machines. He had to design the experiments. They were an amazing pair. And we should say that Charles Norris, uh, among all the other attributes he brought to the position, he was also a scientist. He was. He had got. He had an MD degree in pathology, and he had studied uh, in European universities, looking at different, especially infectious diseases as cause of death. He was the city's chief medical examiner, but he routinely scheduled himself into the autopsy room. He went out to crime scenes. He uh, did his own research and became very famous in the United States. Uh, you know, the stuff of Time magazine and national newspapers. Okay, so we'll look at a couple of the uh, of the poisons, and one of them is arsenic. And you write that arsenic detection is the foundation of forensic toxicology. Why? Why arsenic? Arsenic was the poisoner's best friend uh, for centuries, really. Uh, it was easy to get. It um, that you find it used by poisoners in Europe going back, you know, to the 1200s and earlier. It uh, was tasteless. It mixed easily into food. Well, when you say you could get your hands on it easily, what was it? You could go to the store and there would be a bag of arsenic sitting there, or was it found in other substances? It was in pesticides. It was in medicines. It was in cosmetics. People took it in solution to improve their uh, facial complexions. It was in powders. Women would actually dust it on their face to give themselves a nice pale look. It was in dyes. It was in fabrics. It was in wallpaper. My favorite, actually, of the early 19th century was a rat poison called rough on rats. So with arsenic, it was difficult to tell whether or not it was an accidental or purposeful poisoning. And the, and the story of um, Mary Frances Creighton is an example of that, where she may or may not have poisoned her brother. He died. But, but he was also exposed to arsenic in his everyday life. Right. And, and that kind of ambiguity worked perfectly for her. I mean, many years later, she confessed to that murder. But at the time, one of the things that was interesting to me, because when I'm telling the story of Mar Mary Frances Creighton, and 
she she appears twice in the book, you know, sort of early and then later when she kills again, is that at the time in the 1920s, she kills her brother. Of course, she denies it. And they can, they know he's dead from arsenic. I mean, one of the things about arsenic is if someone suspects that you've been killed by arsenic, it stays in the body and stays in the body and stays in the body. So it's uh, it's really easy to find in a corpse. But the science wasn't good enough to say what the source of the arsenic was. Was it Fowler's solution? Was it rough on rats? Was it some other arsenic material? Where did he get it? No one knew. And it was only later when she used arsenic again that the forensic science had gotten good enough that they could say, we know the arsenic and we can tell what the impurities are and that lets us know exactly what this poison is and that lets us figure out who bought it and where. And Alexander Gettler was one of the men who developed the test to perfect that detection. He was. I mean, he was really a brilliant chemist. And, and in fact, in the second stage of those Creighton trials, he was able to not only get the arsenic from her tissues, but run such a fine analysis on it uh, that that he traced it to a specific brand of rat poison. It was, in fact, rough on rats. Rough on rats was about 10% soot and 90% arsenic trioxide. And he was able to determine the exact impurities so that he could say this was rough on rats, and they were able to actually track down the place where she bought it. Well, I wonder if you could say more than about how Alexander Gettler did this and was able to determine that a poison was in the tissue of a human being. I mean, we may take some of this for granted with our sophisticated chemistry today, but back then you had a body in front of you. Obviously, it had died some way, and you had to figure out what poison was in that body. That's a really good question. I mean, today, a lot of our if you walk into a chemistry lab, it's almost all big machines. And, and they call forensic, the forensics chemistry dry chemistry. You know, you can have a whisper or a trace or a tiny bit of material, put it in a machine like a gas chromatograph, and it'll give you all kinds of computerized results. Back then, not only did they didn't have machines like that, often they didn't have machines, period. They had Bunsen burners. They had a lot of chemicals they could mix in. They had meat grinders. And Gettler literally would uh, take organs, grind them up into, you know, a gruesome kind of slush, and then purify that slush out until he had gotten out all, all the organic material, if necessary, and was down to a, a, the sort of clear solutions and fluids that had come out of it. And then he would have to run other tests on those fluids. And also what he discovered is that these poisons, uh, they react in different ways depending on how they're administered. So if you eat it, that's one thing. If you mm -hmm. breathe it in, that's another. And that brings us to a case in 1922. The headline of the paper in New York at that time read, Aged Couple Slain Strangely. And it told the story of a 75-year-old man and his 60-year-old wife. Their bodies were found in a locked apartment... And the medical authorities had to determine what had happened. And at first they thought it was a double suicide, but that was proven incorrect. What happened? That is a fascinating story, isn't it? So this was a very affluent, a wealthy couple, Fremont and Annie Jackson. And they lived in this beautiful, I always wish this hotel was still there, but they lived in this gorgeous uh, uh, neoclassical hotel, the Hotel Margaret, which was in a wealthy section of Brooklyn. They had a private apartment there. And one morning, the maid came in. They were both dead on the floor of the bathroom. And they had obviously died a painful death from the way they were twisted and their skin was discolored. But there was nothing in the apartment. There was no poison alcohol from Prohibition. There was no po poison dinner that some you know, evil relative had done. And uh, they thought maybe that it was cyanide because cyanide tends to make the kind of blue discoloration of the skin. But when they uh, analyzed the stomachs, there wasn't any cyanide there, no blue color, no nothing. And everyone was so baffled by this. And finally, one of the police detectives went back and re-interviewed everyone and discovered that the hotel had been fumigating with hydrogen cyanide gas. I mean, it's kind of incredible that you would take a gas as poisonous as that and do pesticide fumigation with it. But in the early 1920s, that was fairly standard. And uh, they had covered it up, completely covered it up. 
And so the, the fumes had gone up through the vent system. That's exactly right. They had been fumigating in the basement. These fumes had wafted up through the ducting and killed the couple. And later, they went back and actually tested that. They put rats in the apartment, did it again, and found that it absolutely was it. So they prosecuted these guys. And Norris and Gettler were able to persuade the city of New York to outlaw cyanide fumigations entirely. I think what stunned me, I found myself pausing and just shaking my head over and over and reading these stories, is how ubiquitous these poisonous or these toxins were in everyday products. So you had... um, you know, cyanide in the in the fumigant. Okay, fumigants are, tend to be poisonous, but the arsenic-based dye in wallpaper, um, thallium mm-hmm. in eyelash um, dyes, and in um, tonics for the hair. I mean, these these um, these poisons were everywhere. And of course, with hindsight, you look back and you think that's incredible that people were being so blasé in some ways and using these poisons and these and exposing themselves every day. Yeah, it was amazing that, that, you know, they had radioactive materials and face creams, radium face creams and health drinks. They had all kinds of kind of over-the-counter mercury solutions, and mercury is a horrible neurotoxin. And I asked myself, what was it? It was like at that time, I think, we were building, we were really building the society we live in today where chemistry was like the new magical thing that was improving life. And people had so much faith that these new exciting compounds, you know, that made your lashes darker, your skin pale, were, were just uh, the the next best thing. And they completely trusted that somehow they would never be harmful. It was like a blind faith in chemistry. Deborah Blum, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Deborah Blum with her dark and diabolical tale, The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder, and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York. For Mystery Science Radio, I'm your host, Archer Livingston Wendell, Wendell Livingston, Earl of Duke Thistlewood. So, Molly, from the primitive chemistry labs of a century ago with their beakers of colored liquids to this modern, technologically sophisticated toxicology lab replete with spectrometers, Science of chemistry has come a long, long way. Do you have that bag of stuff we picked up earlier? Yeah, I do, except for that peach. I ate it. What? Well, it was ripe. Well, that's the pits. Bring what's left anyway. Okay. All this talk about poisons has raised a few more questions. Uh, so, Martin, when I think of poisons, when I think of toxins, I mean, I don't have a very clear idea of what the difference is. Are those just two words for the same thing? A toxin is something that's derived from the natural world, and there are examples like botulinum toxin and other things. They can be toxic in any amount. Generally, though, of course, we tend to think of them as being highly toxic in very small amounts. Now, poison is something that is any chemical which is toxic to you in small amounts, usually less than a teaspoonful for an adult, is what we typically classify something as being a poison. Well, Martin, look what we have here. What what, what is this? So it's a concentrated bleach, which is probably one of the most dangerous things people typically have in their, in their house. How does it harm us? Small children often come across bleach under someone's sink or at some accessible place in the bathroom. And unfortunately, uh, if you drink bleach, you typically destroy your, the upper windpipe or the upper part of your respiratory tract. And that means you are not really able to breathe. It's like being strangled. But in the case of bleach, I mean, bleach has chlorine compounds in it. And I think a lot of people know that chlorine is dangerous, even though it might be in their swimming pool, because whenever a, a rail car filled with chlorine gas, you know, derails somewhere, they evacuate everybody within miles. It's dangerous. But what is it really doing? I mean, is it just breaking down the cell walls in your upper respiratory tract? Chlorine is a, a very aggressive oxidant. And so typically bleach, which has got the chemical name HOCl, so it's hypochlorous acid, that is a very strong acid. And so basically it's dissolving the walls of your cells and destroying them in that way. So this leads to your immune system trying to repair the damage and you get a lot of injury as a result. So it's almost like a chemical burn. Where does the chemical come from? No, hypochlorous acid is something actually our, even our own cells make. Our immune system makes hypochlorous acid in our body in order to kill invading bacteria. 
So it's a perfectly natural thing. And we actually use bleach in the same way as our bodies do to kill bacteria and viruses and other things. And it's perfectly okay in a small amount. Well, I've also got some aspirin here, Martin. And uh, I take aspirin. I mean, you know, get a headache, you take a couple of aspirin and take them, you know, another couple four hours later. So this is a pretty useful uh, drug, acetosalicylic acid or whatever it is. How, how dangerous is this stuff? Well, actually, it's really not that safe, to be honest. I mean, uh, a couple of the aspirin will not kill you, of course, whereas 100 might. But actually, aspirin wouldn't pass modern toxicology testing. There's too many people who are highly sensitive to it and get bleeding and stomach bleeding from it. And so um, aspirin's not particularly safe. It wouldn't be on the market today if it was, wasn't grandfathered in. No new drug company would be able to get this registered with the FDA. So you're supposed to take a baby aspirin a day to you know, keep your blood pressure down, right? And so that you don't have heart trouble. Well, you are, but some people in those studies, they showed that even taking in a baby aspirin caused stomach bleeding and caused gastrointestinal problems in them. And so there's certain people who have to be screened, even at very low levels of aspirin, causing some problems in them. But for the majority of people, it's not a problem. I understand that the whole chemical industry is tied into women's fashion. Is that true? Yes, it's true, because um, in the 1800s, basically the only way you could dye clothes would be with natural dyes, like henna that you know, now use for hair dye. Uh, the trouble with natural dyes is that when you wash the clothes, the dye washes out and things fade. And you also can't get really bright colours like bright pinks uh, and bright purples. And so uh, a guy called William Perkin made a dye basically using two very toxic substances, arsenic and aniline. He combined them together in his garage in London and made a dye called mauve, which made a, a colour which they then actually used to dye women's dresses and sold at vast quantities of because it was supposedly, if you wore this dress, men proposed to you on the spot. Okay, well, I'm actually wearing a dress that has a little, you say mauve, I say mauve. How so many the, men have you proposed to you today? Well, it's still early in the day. <laughs> And so the dye industry began in uh, the 1850s and Perkin started his company and that became Imperial Chemical Industries, the biggest company in the world, which split into Syngenta and Zeneca, the two biggest drug companies and chemical companies in the world uh, in England. And at the same time, German scientists and Swiss scientists started making new dyes and they invented companies which became the major chemical companies in the world and the major drug companies in the world. Okay, now we have a peach pit here. The peach was delicious. I ate this earlier. This peach pit, if I eat it, if I could, if I could swallow this, I mean, we maybe, could cut maybe it. that's the danger, Molly. If you swallow it, you'll choke. Choking? Okay, let's say we could cut it up and we could eat this. Will we be sickened by cyanide? You could be. In many pits, such as in uh, the pits in apple cores and other things, there are cyanide present, or cyanide can be released from the chemicals in it. And that is potentially dangerous if you took in enough of it. It, it gets me worried about things like peach teas and various natural things where people don't worry about these things. They just extract things. I mean, they have raspberry leaf tea. What, what on earth is in raspberry leaves? Nobody normally would eat raspberry leaves, and this always makes me very worried. So the herbal medicine things make me very worried. The Chinese medicines make me very worried. As a toxicologist, you would never take those things. Yeah, that's very perplexing to me too, Martin, the, the idea that somehow if it's natural, it must be safer for you. But nature's out to get you. So generally, natural things uh, can be very dangerous. Everybody tells me, well, natural's got to be safer because we're defended against it. But arsenic is natural. Mercury is natural. Benzene is natural, completely natural. They're the first chemicals basically on Earth. Essentially, we've built no resistance to them whatsoever. There's no evidence of we're building resistance to natural chemicals. Botulinum toxin is probably the most toxic thing most people will come across in their everyday life. Botulinum toxin is the stuff in Botox, which people inject to get rid of wrinkles. And it's thousands of times more toxic than uh, strychnine or cyanide. People also don't realize that the nicotine in cigarette smokes is more toxic than strychnine. All right. Well, Martin Smith, thank you so much. I think I'm going to go out and uh, have a peach and finish it off with a glass of water. And some aspirin. Thank you very much for coming to see me. Martin Smith is a toxicologist at the University of California in Berkeley, where he specializes in the cancer-causing effects of environmental substances. Coming up, snakes. Enough said. 
Now you can have Are We Alone at your fingertips. Just download our groovy new app for your iPad, iPhone, or iPod Touch. Stream our latest shows and get bonus content. Plus, help us with your feedback. Take our survey at radio.seti.org, answer a few quick questions, and you might just win a SETI Institute mug, perfect for containing whatever fuels your inquiring mind and impressing the guy in the next cube. Remember, we appreciate your comments on iTunes. Keep them coming. Welcome back to Are We Alone? and What's Your Poison? Well, Seth, we humans spend a lot of effort worrying about poisons and trying to stay away from them. Good reason in many cases. But one of the deadliest bacteria produces a substance that, well, Hollywood might not be Hollywood without it. Botox. Botox, of course. And you can always tell which actress has used it by the look, or rather the lack of look, upon her face. That's right. And now psychologist Joshua Ian Davis and his team at Barnard College in New York have discovered that when Botox freezes your face and smooths out those wrinkles, it also puts a chill on your emotions. Josh, into what muscles is Botox injected? Botox, for cosmetic purposes, is typically used for the frown lines that go between the eyes. And in addition, it's commonly used in the crow's feet area around the side of the eyes. Now, Botox is a toxin, isn't it? The name comes from botulinum toxin. So botulinum is a derivative of botulism, but it's not actually botulism. It's something derived from it. Would you consider Botox a poison? It does function as a neurotoxin, so yes. Now, how does it work to inhibit facial wrinkles? What it does is to interfere with acetylcholine activity at the junction between the motor neuron and the muscle. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter, and essentially what happens is the motor neuron coming down from the brain to the muscle can remain normal. They can have normal activity there, but when you get to the end of it, to the junction with the muscle, the acetylcholine that's necessary to activate the muscle, to cause the muscle to actually contract, that's been interfered with. So then the muscle doesn't contract, it just lies there inert. You know, people comment on the inability of most often actresses who have had these injections, their inability to register emotions. You know, you can't really see them on their face because their faces don't move. But your work suggests that Botox, having these injections, also inhibits their ability to feel emotions. That's right. Yeah. So we're looking at the other direction. Commonly, we think about our facial expressions as communicative signals showing other people what we feel. And we're asking the question, can our expressions also influence how we feel? It's probably a loop, a continuous loop from the periphery back to the brain. And what Botox allows us to do, I think for the first time really, is to interrupt that loop and see when someone is responding otherwise normally, what happens if we simply don't have muscle movement and then the feedback to the brain from that movement. So how you conducted this experiment is you took a a number of women, I believe, who had had this Mm -hmm. treatment, who had had Botox injections, and then what did you do? We got them before and after the treatment. I mean, these were all people who had not had it before. And we had them respond to a series of short videos that were intended to make them feel positive or negative. And afterwards, they would rate their own emotional experience in the moment. So they were asked to rate how positive or negative they felt in response to what they watched. And what sort of videos did they see? Well, it was important to have negative and positive videos that we could see whether there was an overall decrease in the strength of emotion or whether it was just sort of a shift towards more positivity or a shift towards more negativity. An example of one of the negative videos included um, a man eating a live worm sausage. A live worm sausage? A live worm sausage, right. So in that case, it's predominantly discussed and it's one that typically evokes facial expression. So I just had a big reaction to that. Okay, so that's the negative. What was the positive? Um, so the positive example of the positives would be the kind of slapstick you might see on America's Funniest Videos, where a dog grabs hold to a mop and gets dragged around the floor, and it's hard to describe without seeing it why it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> okay. So the women, they watched a number of these videos, and then what happened? So they watched the videos, they rate how they would feel in response to them, and they would then go to the doctor, uh, have the treatment, and then they would come back and watch another set of videos and respond again. And we also compared them to a control group, people receiving a different injection, uh, very similar in a number of ways in that it's intended to deal with wrinkles in the face. It also will last for approximately up to six months. The key difference is that 
the control injection has no effect on the muscles. All right, you have the control group, and you have these women that have watched the videos before they had Botox injections and then afterward. When you compared the two experiences, what did you find? So what we found was that compared to the control group, the Botox group shows a relative decrease in the strength of their emotions. How were you able to measure the change in their emotional reaction? On the metric of how positive or negative do you feel in response to this video, and the scale from minus four to four. So in each case, we have a rating for the videos before and after. So the women, when they saw the, the man eating the sausage casing filled with worms, they did not find that disgusting? The kinds of things that would happen was, were that for that class of videos, they would be on average, a weaker response. So it's not that they didn't find that disgusting, but that in general, it would be slightly less negative. So what you found is that the women would watch these videos, and after they had had the Botox injections, they just wouldn't have as strong an emotional response to what they were seeing on the screen. And and you say that there's a correlation between our emotional response um, that we feel and also our facial response and then how we register emotions on our face. That's exactly right. If you take away the facial expression, then you're taking away something of the emotional experience. Well, Josh, so why would this be? It sounds like there's some kind of feedback between the brain where your feeling originates and your facial muscles. Why would they be tied together like that? Yes, there is this feedback loop. Our bodies and our brains have continuously been very efficient in terms of making use of the existing equipment that we have. There's no brain area that is not somehow involved in either perception or action. So as we've evolved these more sophisticated and higher level abilities, like feeling complex emotions, it makes sense that these would be scaffolded onto our more basic equipment for interacting with the world. So, for example, our emotions may be a readout of what it's like to be in a certain physiological state, you know, to have certain facial expressions going on, to have certain GI activity, to have a certain posture, to have a certain breathing pattern. There's something that it's like to have that all going on, and maybe that's really what it means to have an emotion. Our emotions are motivating, and that has to do with movement and interacting with people. And so the fact that they should be tied to our bodies so intimately makes a whole lot of sense. Finally, do you think, uh, Josh, that this study of yours will dissuade people from using Botox? I mean, it's one thing not to have all your facial expressions, but it's another not to have all your emotions. I would think that whether people see it as a plus or a minus for them probably depends on their goals. But I could imagine some people who don't want to limit their emotions would say, I'm going to avoid it for that reason, and that other people who might see it as an opportunity to respond more calmly uh, might actually see it as a, a benefit for them. Well, Josh, thank you very much for talking to us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. I must confess, hard to imagine deliberately injecting yourself with something that interferes with your muscle activity. Joshua Ian Davis is a psychologist at Barnard College in New York City, Botox, I wonder if those early 20th century New York medical examiners could have somehow used Botox to stop criminals, you know, freeze. Which is exactly what you'd say if you saw a snake. Now, this is the creature that we consider the most lethal to humans, but actually it's not. Venom biologist Jamie Seymour knows something about this. He tracks such critters from his perch as director of the Tropical Australian Stinger Research Unit at James Cook University. And he's discovered which animal is most lethal. Jamie, have you ever been bitten by a venomous animal during the course of your job? I really want to say no, but unfortunately I have to say yes. I've been stung several times by uh, Urukanji jellyfish and several hundred times by big box jellyfish. Never been bitten by a snake, thankfully, touch wood. But, you know, it sort of goes with the territory if you're going to be playing with venomous animals. At some stage of the game, you are going to get bitten. And uh, my last trip, I got stung by a, a small Urukanji jellyfish and spent 24 hours in hospital. It was horrific. My goodness. Well, it sounds like a more dangerous job than astronomy, just to name something. Uh, well, tell me, what is a venom? I mean, we all think we know what a venom is, but you must have a, a better definition of what a venom is. Yeah, I mean, this is the trick that people fall into all the time. They go, I was bitten by a poisonous snake. Well, poisonous snakes may bite you, but there won't be a problem. The difference between venoms and poisons are that they are toxins. Venoms are toxins that are injected. So in other words, they come in via teeth or stings. Poisons are toxins that you have to ingest. In other words, you have to eat them. So you have 
poison arrow frogs, which you've got to lick or eat, and then you have venomous snakes, which you've got to bite you to inject the venom. So a so, blowfish is poisonous, but it's not venomous. There you go. Got it one. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> well, well, I thought you were just an astronomer. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that, that is a fairly, I, I admit, a low calling. Well, obviously what interests me as a homo sapien, and this is a bit lurid, but after all it is what interests me, which venom is most deadly to me? What, what sort of animals should I be staying away from? And do you know the answer to that? That's a really interesting question, and it depends on how you want to define deadly. What's happened in the past is they do what's referred to as LD50s. So in other words, you inject your venom or your poison or your toxin into a mouse and you work out the concentration at which that kills 50% of your mice every time you do it. That really has no bearing on what happens when you inject it into a human because you're killing mice, not humans. However, you can't get ethics approval to go and test this on humans. And we've tried. You know, even, even on first-year university students won't let you do it. So some years back, I decided we'd do this by looking at it on human heart cells and human muscle cells. Now, if you want to look at which venom from animals kills heart cells quicker than anything else on the planet, it's big box jellyfish. Jellyfish? Without a shadow of a doubt. You put that venom in at the same concentration as any other venom, and you'll kill heart cells in under two minutes. My goodness. Well, you know, you mentioned snake venom, and of course, snakes are among the more lethal animals. How does snake venom actually work? What, what actually takes place when they bite you? And not if you're a human necessarily, but if you're prey for the snake, what happens to you? Variety of things. And again, it depends on which species you look at. But if we go with the world's most venomous snake, which is the inland type N, uh, we get them in Australia and probably, probably have to go three or four hours drive from where I presently am, but I'd find them. When you're bitten by that, the venom does a variety of things. First off, what it does is it causes coagulation of your blood. All your blood cells all clot up. And if you're lucky enough, that doesn't become obstructed in your heart or your lungs, and you survive that bit, which is good. If it gets stuck in your lungs or your heart, you die. End of story. If you get over that, it chews up all the clotting compounds in your body. What then happens is your blood becomes completely unclottable, and you literally bleed out of every orifice in your body. So we've had people, for example, that have been bitten by taipans that have just had a teeth or one of their teeth removed and they've bled from where the tooth has come out and they're not able to stop the bleeding. So you, you basically bleed out from that. However, just killing something by making the blood clot or not clot is not good enough for snakes. So they also have muscle toxins in them, so they break down the muscles. So you, you basically your muscles slowly but surely break down and that's to aid digestion because snakes don't have big teeth to chew things up. If that doesn't get you, then they have some snakes certainly have neurotoxins in them, so they affect your nervous system. If that really doesn't get hold of you, then there's others that have got cardiotoxins, so toxins that affect your heart. And if all that doesn't happen, then your kidneys shut down. So any of those things is good enough to kill you, but by and large, because there's such a gamut of things they can do, it's very, very effective. You mentioned that the box jellyfish was the most lethal animal, uh, ounce per ounce of its venom. Uh, what does it do? Box jellyfish have two major components to their venom. One is what's referred to as necrotic tissue death. So in other words, when you're stung, your cells start to die where you've been stung. Uh, and, and again, that helps to aid digestion or, you know, as the animal eats a fish, you know, it's got no teeth, so it's got to break it down somehow. That's not the thing that causes you the problem. What they have is a cardiotoxic component to their venom. In other words, it attacks your heart. And it is very, very specific. And what happens is if you think of your heart cell as a little cell that's pumping away, what the venom does, we think, and we're not entirely sure of this, but what it does is it opens up all these little pores on the, the cell and calcium flows into the cell and the cell contracts and then it doesn't relax. So instead of your heart beating and contracting and then relaxing, beating, contracting and relaxing, it now beats and doesn't relax. So you end up with zero blood flow through your system. So if you physically want to kill something, that is the quickest way to do it is to stop the heart. And that's what these guys do. And the venom is very effective. Uh, what about the predators of, well, I mean, snakes have predators. I mean, all these things that are, that are poisonous have predators. Uh, do any of these predators succeed in developing their defenses so that they can, you know, bite into these guys, eat them, get bitten by them, and just walk away from it, smacking their lips and thinking it was still a good meal? Absolutely. It's almost a war. So what you look at is venomous animals are always changing their venom, always evolving, and slight changes to it. And their predators are always evolving to try and keep pace with that. So they're sort of almost like running on the spot but going nowhere. Great examples of this are things like mongoose, which eat cobras and things of that nature. I've certainly seen mongoose that have been chasing cobras. They get bitten 
and they survive it quite readily. Most snakes are immune to their own venom as well. It's continual war of the venomous animals and poisonous animals for that matter, continually modifying their, their toxins and the things that are eating them are continually trying to keep pace with that. So it's a war between the two animals. And usually the venomous animals succeed, but not always. I have to say, injecting your uh, your next dinner with a venom is a very peculiar and kind of creepy kind of adaptation. Did it happen only once? Is it sort of a special kind of way of catching your next meal? In other words, could it be that all venomous creatures descended from a single lucky ancestor that happened to develop this capability? Nice thought. No, definitely not. I mean, venoms have evolved many, many times. And what's really interesting, and, and this sort of shocks most people, if I was to say to you, are the majority of animals on the planet, if we, if we broke them into phyla or major groups, are they venomous or non-venomous? And most people will go they're non-venomous. Incorrect. Something like about 65 to 70% of the phyla or the groups of animals on the kingdom, on the planet, have venomous animals in them. So venoms are actually not the exception, but tend to be the rule. Well, that suggests to me that perhaps if we could examine the animals of another world, we might find venomous critters there. I mean, it sounds like maybe an obvious kind of evolutionary development then uh, that, that would happen maybe just about everywhere. Absolutely. If there was life on other planets and we found it, I would be shocked if they weren't venomous or poisonous in some way. I mean, toxins are just so effective at what they do, and they are so common. I mean, we have venomous plants. Not poisonous ones, but venomous plants. So you have poison ivy. People call it poison ivy. It's actually not poisonous. It's venomous because it's injecting a venom. We have stinging trees in Australia that actually cause death if you brush up against them and get a big venom load and you die. So it is very, very common. So certainly, you know, I would not be surprised at all if life on other planets was venomous. Well, Jamie Seymour, I want to thank you so much for injecting a lot of good information into a very interesting conversation. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Cairns, Australia is where venom biologist Jamie Seymour hunts for deadly critters as director of the Tropical Australian Stinger Research Unit at the School of Marine Tropical Biology at James Cook University. And that is the end. The end of you if you're stung by a box jellyfish. But we don't have to go to such venomous lengths to wind up the show. We only need to say... Thank you to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where studying life elsewhere in the universe means understanding the sometimes dramatic mechanisms of biological evolution. You've been listening to What's Your Poison on Are We Alone? If you'd like to hear this program again, please visit us at radio.seti.org. I'm Archer Livingston Wendell, Wendell Livingston, Earl of Duke Thistlewood, saying good night. Harwood, this tea you serve me tastes a bit off. Interested in science? Captivated by sci-fi? Nuts about space flight? Then mark your calendars for SETICON, coming the weekend of August 13th. Scientists, sci-fi writers, and astronauts will all be gathering in Santa Clara, California. You should be there, too. SETICON. SETICON.com. You can listen to Are We Alone via Zubio. Go to radio.seti.org's listening page and click on the Zubio icon to learn more. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.